Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at how we got to the form of toothless liberalism we are living with today, and begin to reimagine what a more muscular state apparatus could do in the face of the climate crisis. Clips today are from The Majority Report, The Tom Hartman Program, Citations Needed, and Bad Faith, with an additional members-only clip from The Majority Report. We can start there with the concept of the end of history and then move into the Obama election. For people who might not know, what is that concept and, and why did you make it one of the central points of your book? Sure. Okay. I mean, so the end of history is uh, the title or part of a title of a book by uh, Francis Fukuyama. Um, and it kind of, that, that book famously posited, uh, came out in the nineties, famously posited liberalism, kind of liberal democratic institutions as the sort of uh, end point of human history. So, um, you know, it's uh, to be very general about it. Um, the, the suggestion was that uh, we've arrived at this uh, situation where most uh, most societies either are or contend to be or are moving towards, um, you know, liberal democratic institutions, um, you know, uh, a kind of market economy, that sort of thing. Um, and it's significant for a few reasons. I mean, I think uh you know, every, every era in some way thinks it's special, right? Every era has a sense of its own exceptionalism. I think the era in which both you and I are born, um, was exceptional in its exceptionalism, if I can put it that way. I mean, it's quite a thing to, uh, for, for there to be a pervasive sense, right? This wasn't just in the book. This was, you know, Fukuyama was articulating something that was really in the air at the time. It was really informing, uh, politics, particularly in the Anglo-American world, but also beyond um, this, this belief that, you know, really there were no, there were no alternatives to this, um, you know, uh, sort of taking up channeling Margaret Thatcher's famous phrase, right? There is no alternative. Um, so uh, from now on, uh, politics is going to be contested within this, this um, much narrower set of parameters than it had been in the 20th century, where, of course, um, you know, you had liberalism, but you also had all of these challenges to liberalism, obviously the communist challenge, the fascist challenge uh, as well. Um, and, and I think also it's important to add the social democratic uh, challenge uh, as well, which you saw in European countries and elsewhere. So um, that's a very truncated kind of uh, answer to your question. But I think all of this is significant because even today, um, there really is still a belief um, that a lot of people have um, that that there really isn't an alternative that is possible or can really even be imagined to the present that we currently live in. Um, and I think that's still a very significant uh, influence, the kind of a, an ambient influence that that exerts on our on our politics and on uh, really all of our social and cultural discourse as well. So, yeah, what's your sense of how that? that i mean it's the myth that capitalism has won forever and it's going to be naturalized as the only system and also you know neoliberal politics there's really very little alternatives to it social democracies are are that's reserved for tiny countries maybe in northern europe but we're not going to promote those policies uh among the broader population in in, in bigger uh, capitalist countries like the u.s like how did and how did uh, an entire generation of politicians all align along that same religious belief in those ideas because it's it's th that's a huge for uh force of of um groupthink that it's it's hard to even fathom how like you know it, it just became so unchallengeable in such a short period of time. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And, and I mean, if you go back 30 years before the so-called end of history, I mean, a lot of people felt the same thing, including con many conservatives, by the way, I think had the same sense of kind of Keynesian social democracy and the, the, the welfare state that emerged in, uh, in Europe and elsewhere after the Second World War. People felt that that was an impregnable consensus and that really you could only make kind of tweaks within it. You could have a sort of conservative version of it, or you could have a version that may be trended towards um, some kind of socialism, but there was no, uh, there was nothing that could, you know, no horizon that could be really seen beyond it. What happened in the nineties, I think is, uh, I mean, it's complicated because, I mean, you use the word religious and I do, I think that's the right word. There's a kind of a, really a secular theology almost that's developed in the 1990s around liberal democratic 
capitalism. And the story of how that comes about, I think, is complicated. I mean, there's um, in in kind of a uh, the macro sense, you have the the you know obvious seismic event of the fall of the Soviet Union, and and also preceding that, really the uh, you know, just the, the clear failure and dysfunction of what the Soviet model had become to deliver anything. I mean, the, you know, the kind of final years of the Soviet Union, especially, are just characterized by such um, dysfunction and also, you know, uh, decrepit leadership that's unable to hang on to power and all that kind of thing. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I think another factor, and this can't really be overlooked um, either, uh, although it's a more boring um, answer in some ways, is in the countries where neoliberalism is most potent and where it develops, I think, most strongly, first among conservatives, but then also is taken up by liberals, in some cases in an even more fanatical way. So I'm thinking about Britain and America especially. Um, there's a specific context, which is that the uh, in the United States, the, the, the Liberal Party and kind of the New Deal consensus, that, that being the Democrats, and then in Britain, the Labour Party, um, really suffered defeats uh, throughout the 1980s, unlike anything that they'd suffered before. I mean, there are these Reagan, these big Reagan landslides. And in the UK, the Labour Party loses four general elections between 1979 and 1992. And, and uh, at the same time, the uh, institutions that had kind of buttressed, uh, you know, the post-war settlement in these countries, so big working class institutions, trade unions uh, built at least partly around strong manufacturing, that kind of thing. Um, you know, th those institutions are completely battered. So there's no longer kind of the popular and institutional foundation um, that there had been before. And so there's a complicated interplay of, of kind of ideas and material factors here. But by the time you get to the 1990s, I mean, uh, I think I'll, I'll just turn to the British example because I don't want to be too exhaustive here. By the time you get to Tony Blair in 97, you know, there's really nothing left in in uh, Labour's program that has anything to do with kind of, I mean, social democracy, really. They're proudly boasting about how they're going to spend the exact same amount as the Tories. But people were so fed up with 18 years of conservative rule and so kind of on the hunt for some kind of novelty, um, you know, Blair was able to uh, present himself as this kind of transformational um, leader. And, and in doing so, he was able to kind of channel a lot of the kind of uh, zeitgeist in, in the air about the end of history that we've been talking about. time to nationalize the fossil fuel industry. Now, I, I know the moment you say nationalize, everybody thinks, oh my God, Venezuela, uh, Iran, uh, people don't think much about Norway, but, but you know, and, and all the, you know, the, the, the one time that a Democrat actually said this out loud was back in 20, uh, 2008. And it was during a hearing where the fossil fuel uh, executives, the CEOs were refusing to answer her questions. And Maxine Waters, Representative Maxine Waters, a black woman with power, something Republicans hate and fear more than anything else they can imagine. Maxine Waters uh, basically came right out and said, if you don't start giving me straight answers, we're going to start talking about nationalizing your industry. She used the word socialized, but, you know, same thing. And, of course, Fox News went nuts. They melted down. In fact, there's a link to it over in, in the, uh, in the op-ed at HartmanReport.com. But... Fox News and all the, all those on the right, and frankly, Democrats who freaked out when Maxine Waters said this, are either unaware of or completely ignoring the long history in this country of nationalizing industries that work against the national interest during a time of crisis. And if you don't think that this is a time of crisis, this climate crisis, well, I've got a tornado to sell you, or the fact that, hey, it's April 11th, and it snowed in Portland, Oregon. There's an inch of snow on the ground outside right now. Well, it's probably down to a half inch. It's starting to melt. But, you know, it's never happened before. Last year, it was 116 degrees for three days in a row here. That's never happened before either. We're getting Phoenix weather alternating with North Pole weather. I mean, it's just... So, you, you know, if you don't think that we're in a climate crisis, you, you're not paying attention. And in large part, this crisis has been brought about by the fact that the fossil fuel industry for over 40 years has been lying to us about the impact of their product on this crisis. 
and funding organizations that are out there lying about climate change and, and denying climate change and funding politicians. I mean, you know, look at Joe Biden had a plan and the Democrats had a plan to spend a half a trillion dollars, $500 billion on greening the American economy that really would have taken a good bite out of climate change. It would have reduced our carbon emissions substantially in this country over the next five or 10 years. And it was defeated, it passed the House. It was defeated by every Republican in the United States Senate, plus Joe Manchin, who's taking money from the fossil fuel industry. In fact, he's the single largest recipient of fossil fuel industry money in the United States Senate. This is an industry that is calling out for nationalization. I mean, it, 40 years ago, literally 40 years ago, Jimmy Carter, this was 1979, 43 years ago, actually, Jimmy Carter declared a national crisis. And he said, you know, he was going to propose legislation to create, quote, this nation's first solar bank, which will help us achieve the crucial goal of 20% of our energy coming from solar power by the year 2000. You've heard me play the clip over and over and again. And he also, Jimmy Carter, the part that's not in the clip that I, that I play for you so frequently, is he also wanted to create a program to sell bonds, essentially like war bonds. FDR did this during World War II. He created a, a, a nonprofit, a government agency, that sold government bonds. In other words, you could loan money to the federal government, essentially. Sold in today's dollars, you know, billions of dollars worth of government bonds to fund an effort to, gener to, to invent synthetic rubber. This was during World War II. Because we were running out of rubber for tires for jet fighter jets. And it worked. And FDR did that. And, and so Jimmy Carter said, just as a similar synthetic rubber, rubber corporation helped us win World War II, so will we mobilize American determination and ability to win the energy war. He proposed this in 79. And, you know, it all came crashing down 42 years ago this coming January when the fossil fuel industry's candidate, Ronald Reagan, replaced Carter in the White House, killed the solar bank and bond program, and even took Carter's solar panels off the roof of the White House. So if there was ever an industry that merited nationalization, right now it's the fossil fuel industry. But what's the history of this? During the crisis of World War I, President Woodrow Wilson nationalized the country's railroads, our phone companies, and our telegraph operators. He also nationalized the radio networks and all the radio stations in this country. They were returned to private ownership after the war, but he had nationalized them during the war. During World War II, Franklin Roosevelt did the same thing. He nationalized the airplane manufacturers. He na nationalized several gun manufacturers. He nationalized over 3,300 mines in the United States. He nationalized the nation's railroads. He nationalized dozens of oil companies, Western Electric Company, the Hughes Tool Company, Goodyear Tire and Rubber, and even Montgomery Ward, along with 17 foreign companies doing business in the United States. After FDR died, Harry Truman came along, finished the war. He also nationalized the meatpacking industry across the country and the Monongahela Railroad Company, the nation's steel mills, and hundreds of rail companies. Nearly all were returned to the private sector after the war was over, although it did take until 1965 to reprivatize all of them. Then came Richard Nixon. In the wake of the collapse of the Penn Central Railroad, Richard Nixon oversaw the nationalization and transfer of 20 railroads into a new government entity that was called the National Rail Passenger Corporation. Today we call it Amtrak. Richard Nixon did that. In 74, Congress created another nationalized entity to deal with freight rail. This was, this, I believe this was under uh, Jerry Ford. It was called the Consolidated Rail Corporation. We called it Conrail. And it absorbed dozens of failing rail companies. This was nationalization. And they were government held until 1987 when it was privatized. That privatizing Conrail was the third largest IPO. or the, Actually, at the time, it was the largest IPO in American history. In 1984, the Continental Illinois Bank and Trust Company was in a crisis. And Ronald Reagan nationalized it. He bought an 80% ownership share in the company. It wasn't privatized until 1991 by George Herbert Walker Bush and was bought by Bank of America in 94. 
Also in the 80s, after Reagan recklessly deregulated the savings and loan industry, we saw SNLs crash all across the country as the guys running them made off with billions of dollars in their own private money bins. And so Reagan and Congress created a, an umbrella agency. It was called the Resolution Trust Corporation. And they nationalized 747 of America's savings and loans. Assets over $400 billion. They help, were held as nationalized companies from 1987 until 1995 when they were reprivatized. Then that was Reagan, then George W. Bush. Uh, when, when he was handed the White House by five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court, the nation's airline security was entirely in private hands. After 9-11, you know, Bush said, okay, that's it. And he nationalized air, airline security across the United States. He put the entire industry out of business. He didn't even bother buying these companies up and nationalizing them. He just shut them down and replaced them with what we call the TSA today, the Transportation Security Administration. He also nationalized the nation's airlines because they were in a crisis after 9-11. Um, the air, he created this thing called the Air Transportation Stabilization Board that ended up holding seven and a half million shares of U.S. Airways, 18 million shares of America West Airlines, three and a half million shares of Frontier Airlines, one and a half million shares of Transair, uh, 2.38 million shares of World Airways. The Bush administration nationalized, you know, in the George W. Bush administration, again, nationalized the two largest mortgage lenders in the United States. You know, when the crash happened in 2008, they, they, we nationalized Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. They nationalized 77% share in AIG, 36% share in Citigroup, 73% share in GMAC, and forced out GM's president, Rick Wagner, who was just doing a terrible job. Obama came into office and, and he nationalized GM and Chrysler. So, I mean, there's a long history of this. We could buy the three largest oil companies in the United States for less than a half a trillion dollars, about $500 billion. That's one quarter or maybe one fifth of the cost of the Bush tax or of the Trump tax cuts for billionaires. For one fifth of what we paid to give tax cuts to billionaires, we could we could take over these three large oil companies and then just run them, you know, run them well, but to stop all their funding of climate denial and start their, you know, they're seriously attending to the process of figuring out how to how to shift themselves from being oil companies to being energy companies. I mean, this is not rocket science. I realize people are freaking out about the politics of it. Oh my God, you're going to call, you know, they're going to call the Democrats socialists. Every president since Eisenhower, well, going all the way back to Woodrow Wilson, has done this during times of crisis. And this is a crisis. At the beginning of your book, though, Luke, you know, you kind of note there's a seminal moment in especially modern political life in the election of Barack Obama. And you had just talked about this kind of sloganeering, this kind of nod. There's the lexicon of progress, of change, right, of hope, <laughs> but not actually the follow through. That's not actually the policy. It's just kind of the marketing, you know, but noting the really kind of important moment, November 4th, 2008, would you say that history ended again then? Did it start up anew? You know, there's kind of like a key moment that you identify in your own awakening and awareness, especially politically. You, you were 19 at the time. You're the Taylor Swiftian generation. Adam and I are, are old grizzled men. So, uh, whoa, whoa, you know, whoa, 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 uh, remember on. that uh, <laughs> slightly differently. I'm not in your... I'm not in your You're demo, not, buddy. I am. I'm talking about <laughs> Okay. Don't age me. <laughs> um, generationally, Luke, for those your age, like, why do you pinpoint that moment other than being an understandably historic moment, like in general, like even not to be smug or lame about it, it was, but also what did it signify? Well, in, in my own case, I was perfectly teed up to experience the Obama moment in kind of the fullest and most 
evangelical way possible. I had just started, you know, I was just moved to Toronto. I was in my first year of university. I mean, a liberal campus in a major city. I mean, granted, it wasn't in the United States, but downtown Toronto, this was the perfect milieu for like the maximum Obama effect. And I think that there was a widespread sense at the time, and it, you know, it went beyond my own particular milieu, but there was a widespread sense at the time that, you know, this really was something new. And that's because more effectively than I think any other modern political figure, and Obama is really the key to understanding so much, because he's really the superlative expression, I think, of a lot of the things that I identify and complain about in my book. But more than any other modern political figure, more effectively, he presented himself as a champion of progress and of democratic renewal. And, you know, he attracted more support from younger voters than I think anyone had before. Although I think, I mean, Sanders never got to a general election. I think in the primaries, Sanders later surpassed Obama's total, but very significant support from younger people, a lot of enthusiasm. And I think what many of us did not understand at the time was that, as you put it, Neem, I mean, history really was in a sense just kind of ending again. I mean, it was kind of the exact opposite of what we thought it was. It was really the status quo consolidating itself, albeit under a new umbrella and with a new, albeit, you know, it turned out pretty fleeting kind of um, sense of dynamism. And I think for that reason, it was a Rubicon crossing moment for many people, or at least not the event itself, but the events that came after. And particularly people of my generation, people of our generation, broadly speaking, although it sounds like there's some dispute about to which generation all of us uh, belong. Um, But You know, the stars in 2008, I think a lot of people really belonging to different political tendencies, to some extent anyway, the stars did seem aligned for at least some kind of progressive change, even if you were a cynic about Obama or you were skeptical. And I mean, in my own defense, I was I did maintain a certain skepticism about Obama in 2008. And I would say I turned against him quicker than some anyway. But, you know, if you go back to the punditry from 2008, which I actually do in one essay in the book, I mean, it is absolutely it's very instructive to go back and and read that stuff because it's absolutely gushing about a new political consensus that's on the way. There's going to be progressive liberal hegemony for decades to come. Democrats are going to control Congress. They're going to have ironclad control of Congress sort of in the way that they often did after the New Deal. And all of that is significant because when you're promised something like that and it doesn't happen, and you know, in the case of Obama, it's important to note here that the administration was coming to power at a very significant moment, not just as you know, support for the war on terror and the, the legitimacy of the war on terror were waning, but also amid what was then the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression. And so we all ended up watching as you know, this new liberal administration that had talked a pretty good game when it was campaigning. I mean, basically sat back and and did very little while the financial sector was allowed to kind of just get off the hook without really paying much of a price. There was no significant overhaul, certainly nothing on the scale of the New Deal of the American or the global economy. And meanwhile, millions of homeowners and renters and all kinds of people were just allowed to sink. The administration did not care to do anything about that. In Obama's memoir, A Promised Land, which came out, I guess, in at the end, end of 2020, you know, he's quite explicit about that. I mean, he dismisses all alternatives, even to this day, when it's clear how catastrophic the administration's negligence was, he dismisses the possibility they could have done anything else. I mean, he says something to the effect of that the calls for more radical action would have involved a violence to the social order, a wrenching of social and political norms that would have caused more harm than it would have provided assistance, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. But so it's very significant that there was this initial enthusiasm that was so strong, and then this was the result that we got. And I think people reacted to that in a variety of ways. I mean, some people just became reactionaries. A lot of people were more likely to switch off of politics entirely or to become more cynical about them, understandably. But I think for a lot of other people, the conclusion you can draw from something like Obama and the conclusion many of us did draw was that, well, if this isn't what's needed to actually create any kind of progressive momentum moving forward, clearly we need something else. And let's think through what that is. And I think, you know, in the kind of decade or so after 2008, a lot of people arrived at a a basically socialist answer to that question. Everyone on the internet is vying for your attention, and unfortunately, we are no different, except that we only try to earn your attention, never trick you out of it. So if you get value out of this show, 
then you can help support us just by making sure you know about every new episode we put out so that you can decide whether or not to listen to it. This is a delicate balance because we also discourage distracting interruptions and random dings coming from your devices. That said, nearly every podcast app gives you the option to be notified when a podcast of your choice releases a new episode. We hope that you will turn that option on for Best of the Left, but set the notifications to be delivered quietly so you only see them when you're ready to see them. Thanks for your attention. It is the most precious resource you have, and it is exactly what we need to keep the show going strong. Johanna, I do want to ask you, if in these moments where we had uh, ownership stakes, if we weren't so self-constrained um, by saying that we didn't have um, voting voting control, what would you have liked to have, see, have seen done? What, from a climate perspective, for instance could be done at these energy companies to advance the interests of climate, adjust transition, these kinds of things. Yeah. So when we were thinking about, okay, yeah, what would it look like to actually nationalize the fossil fuel industry? Like, what would you do? I think it would, there are different pathways in which you can acquire these entities. You know, you can take over a substantial part of their market share. You can use eminent domain. Um, That's something that actually, we don't talk about it that much, but eminent domain is used on like basically a daily basis in the United States and is a form of nationalization. Like, Mm. even when they're trying to take over the Wendy in Washington, D.C. I don't know if y'all know this, like there's this like terrible intersection um, where there's this Wendy's in the middle and it like has created mayhem on traffic. And so like Washington, D.C., used eminent domain to buy up the Wendy's so that they could fix the intersection. That is, in fact, like that is actually like the public acquiring something that is private. Mm. So you can also use that for like, you know, the ground that is being extracted from, um, as well as, you know, put it in using the Federal Reserve to kind of acquire the stocks as we talk about. But okay, let's say we get it. We have it. It's in hand. Like there are a few principles that we said, you know, you actually have to apply this. And the ultimate mandate has to be that you are going to wind these assets down. Like that is something that I think is really distinct from other nationalization attempts. Um, you know, in the past, it's been to, let's say, ensure that the economy doesn't fall apart or to um, stabilize a specific um, sector. What we're saying is we actually want to um, ensure that the economy is going to continue to work and we are going to wind this thing down over time in a way that prioritizes people over the polluters themselves, like the CEOs. So that's a really different type of mandate that we haven't seen a lot with nationalization in the past. And of course, we would want this to be aligned with a climate success. So saying that all of the extraction that does have to happen um, from now until like full wind down needs to stay within the limits of 1.5 degrees. And then we say that there needs to be communities that are in control because when you are taking out one economy from an area, what are you actually, um, what are you putting in its stead? Are you going to put another form of extraction there? Another form of corporate greed? No, we want to put in like a regenerative economy. We want public, uh, you know, let's say community control. We want, um, you know, local uh, economies that are thriving. And that's got, got to be a core part of that transition. Well, you and- I got to interrupt because my, you know, corporate law brain is going off and saying, well, are there, is there going to be, are there going to be a million legal challenges because of the presumptive interest of shareholders being paramount in this idea that we're now saying as corporate board members, we're going to actively do things that are against the profit motive and shareholder interest for these greater public interest. What do you imagine the pushback there is going to be? I'm sure that there will be abs, like, this will be taken to the courts. That is true. But sometimes we have to, like, we have to take that risk. We mm. have to absolutely do that. And there's a certain part of this that I almost feel like, okay, let the shareholders get some amount of funds in order for us to keep on going. Because for me, the climate and like the people who are uh, experiencing the extraction are far more important. And the national government has that ability. And that's actually been part of the way that um, nationalization has happened in the past. With the railroads, basically, the national government 
sweetened the deal so that the railroad uh, CEOs and execs would get out of the way when when World War One was coming around. Mm. So you could actually imagine something like that so that you can expedite the transition. Um, mm. This is not to say that, you know, and, and when it comes to uh, the shareholders, some of those are pensions. Some of those mm. are workers' money that's there because of how interconnected our energy system is. Who I don't care about getting the payouts are as much the CEOs, you know, as our dear friend Kate Aronoff likes to say, yeah, yeah, let's nationalize them and then send them the hell to the Hague. So, <laughs> well, and, and Brianna, I mean, related to shareholder lawsuits, I mean, this is part of the case for nationalizing them is when you nationalize, you don't just take the company, right? You buy out the existing shareholders. Mm. So those shareholders would be out the door mm. and then it would just be the federal government. So you wouldn't worry. You wouldn't have to worry about shareholder lawsuits anymore. Whereas if Exxon right now <laughs> were to start making those steps with its current shareholders, then maybe it could face certain lawsuits about them not, you know, exercising business judgment or, mm-hmm. or what, what is the rule? Um, so... Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, that's actually one of the cases is that we can get out of some of these, not just corporate law issues, but just get those shareholders out the door, get them paid. And now we can focus on, you know, what we need to do without having to worry about having these conflicting interests involved in the governance of the companies. Let's talk about the sort of ascension of the Biden campaign. Obviously, unlike 2016, which I do think was definitely heavily favored, and we now know kind of in many key ways and against Sanders, the DNC kind of settled on Clinton and everything else was basically reverse engineered around that. Now, obviously, in Biden, you have you have the sort of Obama phone calls and such, but without you know necessarily appealing to uh, nefarious backroom deals, although there was. Biden won. He was very popular. He was very popular in his association with Obama. Charming guy. Does that sort of cutesy Irish uncle thing where he says offensive things and, and, and sort of gets away with it. But he kind of reestablished the center, as it were, the sort of quintessential centrist. You can even look at profiles from the 80s where he literally calls himself a centrist and that was his whole shtick. And that, so clearly some plurality of people still thinks that the center order is either good or preferable to the alternative without getting too much into the circular problem of people aren't sufficiently socialist because they're being propagandized, not because my ideas are bad. Let's talk about the sort of current state of play as you see it. Is this just a band-aid situation? Is this just kind of like a holding the center while shit falls apart around them? Or do you see this as being a, a vindication of that system? Obviously, the polling's not great. Build back better, shit the bed. doesn't seem to be any political or moral or ideological cohesion in the party. Obviously, everyone's gearing up for a huge meltdown in November of 2022. So, so w- what is your take on the current state of the center? And what about your prognostications or lamentations of post-2020 do you think have been proven correct or incorrect? All of them have been proven correct, or just about all. Of them. <laughs> I mean, you know, you kind of asked to what extent can Bidenism be understood as a, or should it be understood as a kind of reigniting of the center versus a bandaid? I mean, I think it's, I think it's very much the latter. And I, I maintain that I think without coronavirus, there's a very good chance Donald Trump would have been reelected. If you look at the, uh, you know, this is obviously, I hate to sound like a pundit, really, but if you look at the economic indicators, as flawed as those are from sort of January 2020 before COVID hit, the conditions existed by which an incumbent president tends to be reelected in terms of these, you know, very crude measures of quote unquote economic performance that are used. I think that Bernie Sanders was the only candidate in the Democratic field who had a strategy that might have been able to beat Trump without coronavirus. I think that Donald Trump so hideously mishandled coronavirus and also that, I mean, just the I mean, the things were just looking so kind of bleak and everybody was so exhausted by, you know, the fall of 2020 that even, in my opinion, the pretty lackluster campaign that the Democrats ran, you know, was able to get out a record number of voters. Of course, Donald Trump got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016, but Biden won by something like 8 million votes. So people were certainly motivated to beat Donald Trump. But I think Biden winning the Democratic nomination, as opposed to any of the other Stop Sanders candidates, is also significant because, as you said, Adam, I mean, in 2016, the Democrats had decided, I mean, this was going to be a Hillary Clinton coronation. I mean, no one remembers poor Martin O'Malley, but, you know, he didn't make it outside of Iowa. And then it ended up being surprisingly close with Sanders. And that wasn't, you know, that wasn't what was supposed to happen. 2020 wasn't like that. I mean, in 2020, and many of the essays in the book, at least in the section on political personalities, 
were written during this time. But I mean, 2020, they just were kind of scrolling through every few months, like a new figure that was going to repeat, you know, some version of Obama's meteor- meteoric rise. And that, uh, I think, really... Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg. I mean, I mean, if you go back... If you go back before the thing actually started, there was talk about Oprah, there was talk about Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, there was like, are the Democrats going to have their own celebrity? And then when it started, you had all these, you know, you had Beto, you had Pete, you had the Club Mentum, you had Kamala Harris was going to be a front runner. Kristen Gillibrand was going to be a front runner. You have all these people that no one remembers. Eric Swalwell, Bill de Blasio ran for president. Poor Bill de Blasio. <laughs> Bill de Bungler did not go anywhere in that campaign. I was sitting there the other day and I was like, wait, Bill de Blasio ran for president. Did I dream that? And yeah. I was like, there was a moment, you know, I mean, you're kind of like half awake it was and you're both. not sure if something he did real and you also dreamt it. And you're like, did he run? And I'm like, did I? And I turned to, I turned to Sarah and I was like, did Bill de Blasio? Oh yeah, he did run. And I was like, ah, so weird. <laughs> but there were, there were so many of these people and, and that reflected, you know, people looked at what happened in 2016 in the GOP and they thought, well, maybe it'll be me. Uh, that was definitely part of it. But I think it also reflected the fact that you know, the liberal project was and is quite incoherent. And in, in the end, it turned out that the figure who was able to carry the anti, you know, consolidate the anti-Sanders forces with obviously with a lot of help from the, the media and you know, a number of other things that, you know, we don't need to get into here because then we'll just digress for the rest of the night and only talk about, you know, what happened in March 2020. But, you know, Biden ultimately was able to consolidate, you know, having completely bungled the early primaries and I think come fourth in Iowa or fifth or something doing badly in New Hampshire, etc. He was able to consolidate the anti-Sanders forces. And it, you know, it turned out that the last, you know, what was behind the emergency glass when liberalism, Inc., you know, smashed it was just this kind of avatar of old, you know, democratic machine politics, this guy who'd been in DC, you know, was first came to the Senate in 1972. So really was just kind of an echo of Democratic consensus is consensus. I'm not sure what the plural is past and, you know, had this association with Obama. And so I think that's a reflection of the weakness rather than the dynamism of liberalism. It's a, a reflection of the incoherence. And we've seen that carried into Biden's first term. We've seen it carried beyond the Trump era because, you know, the Biden campaign really did two things. It sort of told the Justice Democrats wing of the Democratic Party that uh, you're not going to get all the Sanders stuff, but don't worry, there's going to be a public option. There's going to be this hugely progressive agenda that's more progressive than anything you've ever seen. You're going to get a kind of American social democracy, really. That was the pitch. At the same time, you know, if you watch the DNC, this was very similar in many ways. It was worse than the 2016 DNC. There were, you know, they had John Kasich speak. They had Michael Bloomberg. It was grotesque. So Biden was really pledging to do two things. And what people like me were writing at the time, contra the sort of the view that Biden was going to bring in a second new deal was that all we really had to do to know Joe Biden was just look at his record. And I think that that's largely been borne out as he's governed. I mean, they did table, you know, they had the American Rescue Plan, which was more money than you would have expected Joe Biden to spend in a single go. But, uh, you know, and then they did table these kind of bigger spending plans, but there wasn't a strategy. I don't think they undertook a strategy that would be the strategy that you would do to actually pass these things. They very much adopted a conventional, you know, we're going to do everything inside the beltway, we're going to broker, we're going to try to get bipartisan support for things like the infrastructure package, all of that. And where we're at now is that Biden's term has consisted of really, you know, two bills, a rescue plan that provided short term relief and had some good measures that have not been extended. And then this bipartisan infrastructure bill, which I'm not an expert on climate policy, but I've been reliably informed is actively counterproductive on the environment. And I think it's safe to say that any legislation passed with the support of uh, what was it, 10 Republican senators is probably not anything to brag about. And it's certainly not going to reignite the lost flames of American liberalism. So that's, I think, where we're at right now. The problem isn't that the the market signals are, you know, carbon is improperly priced. The problem is the market itself. Well, you know, how is someone like uh, Joe Biden? You know, how is how is any government like this government, which is, you know, for the time being, the only kind of, you know, the only kind of government that we can imagine right now or that we can we at least can see an electoral path to. How is there any sort of government that is effectively subservient to the market and these you know powerful wealthy interests and the profit motive? Uh, how is that going to intervene? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, the thing I would point out first is just that I, I, I think market I, 
you know, I don't think <laughs> it's a fact that markets are created by states. They're a product of state policy at different levels. The United States, you know, has all of these different market creating mechanisms and in international institutions where the U.S. has a huge sway over, you know, things like trade policy, um, you know, that play out in, in format and in forums like the, the World Trade Organization, right? State or markets do not exist without states, right? And, and that's the sort of big lie that a lot of companies, including the fossil fuel industry, try to say i mean i mean the fossil fuel companies in particular are hugely dependent on massive amounts of subsidies right i mean in the us we pour roughly 20 billion dollars a year at the state and federal level into the fossil fuel industry directly and they cannot exist as they currently do without that support right they just will not exist as much as 50% of of of, of oil you know of, of oil developments are unprofitable without mm subsidies, right? And so it's not as if, you know, that the markets are just doing their thing and the states sort of, you know, have a have an obligation to intervene, right? It's that the states are creating markets actively, you know, constantly. And they're are they're, you know, co-creating them as, you know, some some people who study this more deeply than I do um would say. And so I think state policy is essential. And I think one of the failures of of, you know, the well, one of the successes of neoliberalism, I would say, um, is in really limiting kind of what we think states can and should do. Mm-hmm. And so state policy can be, you know, a hugely beneficial thing in people's lives, can be something which drives transformative changes. But there's a deep, deep pessimism about that, you know, including from uh, Democrats, including from, you know, very progressive Democrats about uh, what the scope of the state is. I mean, people have compared uh, the the American jobs plan to the New Deal, which is sort of laughable, right? I mean, the New Deal, for all of its flaws and contradictions, really took a very expansive view of, of state power, right? Both in, in cracking down on corporate power, um, you know, making big moves around things like antitrust, uh, but also, you know, in just creating a welfare state virtually from scratch, you know, and that's the scale of thing we need to do, not just, you know, we need big investment, not just that we need, you know, better regulations, but that we actually have to have a conversation about how the state itself needs to change and respond to meet this crisis, which requires the state to do things that it has not done before, right? We haven't euthanized the, you know, one of the most powerful industries on earth, uh, and, and in recent memory, right? And, and that is, you know, the challenge at hand is to dismantle the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, capitalism is, is very deeply bound up in that. Well, that's kind of what, more what I'm getting at. The limits of this current policy regime, you know, we can call it the Biden policy mm-hmm. regime, but, you know, a big part of that is the essentially, you know, far conservative judiciary. And exactly, you know, at what point uh, would the most effective intervention come? Is it is it changing this entire policy regime that's you know been built up over the decades? Yeah, I mean, I just it, it demands a lot more creative thinking about what the what the state can do. Um, We're talking nationalization know, here, like, come on, hit, yes. hit us with it. We're not afraid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the the type of thing that has to be on the table, and I you know talk about it in the book is is you know nationalizing the fossil fuel industry, which I, should be a pretty straightforward proposal, right? You know, insofar as they have shown absolutely no willingness or interest in meeting this crisis, uh, and, and, you know, dramatically changing their business model, and are just, you know, screwing people over, firing tens of thousands of people, raking in support from from the US government um, to do that things like public ownership of electric utilities, which have been, you know, a part and parcel of all the same sorts of climate denial that the fossil fuel industry has participated in. Over the years, a federal job guarantee, right, which has been a historic demand of of movements, you know, for for dating back decades, you know, was was core to the Democratic Party's platform until 1980, uh, and is just off the table. The idea of hiring people directly is a sort of foreign, weird concept uh, to you know progress, you know, quote unquote progressive policymakers. Um, um, unless and- it's hiring them to be in the military to go and grab right. oil from elsewhere. <laughs> right, exactly. That, you know, the, the US military is the closest thing we have to a federal federal job guarantee. Um, and yeah, I mean, and that's just, uh, those are a couple a couple things that I, I draw on the book. But, you know, it's just the, the comparisons to like FDR and LBJ are just so, are really absurd, I think. So, so what are the real life impediments? I mean, politically speaking, 
I think we can all kind of frame out the arguments that are going to be lobbied out, you know, thrown out there against, oh my gosh, this is socialism. Don't take over the industry, blah, blah, blah. But just assuming a world where nobody cared because there was actually enough narrative work done to make the scope of the crisis clear to people involved. It feels like the kind of the unspoken part of these conversations is the amount of money in terms of lobbying efforts and and, bought, and purchased influence that is going on on a bipartisan basis. And what you talk a lot about in some of the the early chapters and the degree to which so much of our legislation, our rulemaking, PAYGO, which is a Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi special, is, is, is significant, a, a major obstacle to environmental reforms. Um, and a lot of these other kind of um, built in uh, the what was it? E uh, E one one blah, blah, blah. The environmental rule that makes it so that you have to do a cost benefit analysis mm-hmm. for any regulation. OK, so you have to show <laughs> it's just it has to it has to be basically like profitable. Like it has to it has to not hurt profit to do something that's socially beneficial. Is it? Nuts! <laughs> like it's nuts. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. you can you can sprinkle a little bit of carcinogen so long as I can prove to you the value of producing this carcinogen is more valuable than the lives that are lost mm-hmm. or harmed as a consequence, which we all know is something that is very very difficult to measure. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's so deep. I mean, the amount of fossil fuel money just sloshing around. Washington and state capitals around the country is just immense. I mean, there, there's so much money, but it's not, you know, it's not only right that whenever a climate bill comes up, the Exxon Mobil and the American Petroleum Institute and all of these, you know, sort of bad actors pour money into lobbying efforts and advertising campaigns and to fighting those measures themselves. It's that they've done this work for, you know, for dating back like 70, 80 years again. And as, you know, a part of this bigger business conservative movement to really ensconce minority rule at every level of government, including, you know, things like uh, the mandate for leadership that the Heritage Foundation gave to Ronald Reagan in his like first week in office. It's like thick book of policies that that they wanted him to, to introduce. And he took up two thirds of them, right? He took mm. up, you know, an enormous amount of what was essentially an organizing project right? Kimberly Phillips Fine's book, uh, Invisible Hands, really makes this clear, right, that there's this long sort of thoroughgoing effort uh, among the biggest companies in, in the United States to, you know, concretize this stuff into law so that even if, you know, public opinion shift, even if, you know, we know that climate policy is popular, we know that a Green New Deal is popular, and we have a political system which is really bad at translating public opinion into law, into policy change. And, and that's not an easy you know, problem to fix, right? The US Senate is not an easy problem to fix. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to make it seem like dealing with climate change is easy, but it, it really does root back to these very, very anti-democratic institutions that, that, you know, amount, surmount so many barriers to doing, you know, the bare minimum of, of what's needed. You do have to fight against the realistic perception, like the not incorrect perception that our the government's ability to be effective has been neutered and also make the case that we can make it better and then it can work better than the private private industry. But yeah, Republicans are wily and they're very they're very good at this. I mean, Matt, I, I've heard you kind of go back and forth about whether or not the word nationalization is accurate in terms of what has happened in the past, namely in 2008. But do you have any thoughts about from a kind of a messaging perspective, if that's something we should take head on and say, actually, the government can do good things here, are all these historical precedents. Remember how much you love the Tennessee Valley Authority, Grandpa? Or you think, "Mm, given the sensitivity around that word, we should just kind of stealth do it and stealth advocate for it the way it was done in 2008 and basically wrap it in Obama and say, your favorite guy did it. Let's try this again. It's a crisis. Yeah, you know, messaging is always tough. And and in reality, your opponents are going to use the word anyway. So mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. not like you're going to be able to escape it. 
I do think, you know, with TVA, I think that's a really good example. And and that's a different case because we're talking about building an institution from scratch. Mm. And and people do love that. It's really funny, you know, uh, as much as people, um, uh, you know, the S word, (laughs) socialism and nationalization, those things can be kind of real... uh, hot button for some people, but in polling, and I think even just in general, people are, the actual socialist institutions we have, meaning like our state-owned enterprises and uh, public utilities and stuff like that, it's not, you don't see a whole lot of heat about that. People really get kind of heated about the welfare state and, you know, cultural issues, not that, you know, I don't mean to demean those, but whatever, you know, what people put in that bucket. Um, but people love the post office in Tennessee. They love TVA. In fact, Obama tried to privatize TVA and it was state Republicans mm-hmm. that made it impossible for him to do that. Mm. You know, they love, I don't know if they love Amtrak so much, but. <laughs> well, Joe know. Biden does. Maybe that can be the yeah, stick to prod Joe, <laughs> Joe loves that. There's this Amtrak station named after Joe. Right. So, um, yeah, and people, public utilities, you get m- maybe some back and forth depending on how you feel about yours uh, personally. But public production doesn't really face the same kind of, I don't know, the same kind. It doesn't really set off the right as much. Like the rank and file right wingers, you know, they're they're upset about critical race theory and, uh, you know, tra- trans uh, rights and stuff like that. They're not really, you know, banging the table for privatizing the postal service or something like that. Um, You know, when it comes to taking over existing entities, you know, I do think, you know, there's at least a way to talk about it like you were hitting at where, especially if they're in need of assistance, you know, you could kind of hit upon, look, if we're going to give you taxpayer money, you got to give the taxpayers a good deal or something like that, you know, like, we're going to ask of you the same thing that a private financer would ask of you. Mm -hmm. A private financer is not giving you um, money equivalent to 30% of your equity stake with no voting rights. Mm-hmm. So, why does the public have to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think there's a, a reasonable maybe way to kind of draw an equivalence there and say, look, we're not going to get ripped off. We're going to get the same deal that a private investor would get here. And if you were in this kind of uh, dire financial s- situation and you're about to collapse, they would ask for a lot. And they certainly would ask to to be in the in the driver's seat, you know. I want to be really. I want to put a fine point on how possible that is. This is because as I try to make these lists, as I'm doing right now, of common pushbacks from liberals, it's that things that are obviously good, but which haven't been very publicly considered by the politicians that they admire and they think of as hashtag good people. They tend to do this kind of just world hypothesis thing, you know, where you try to make sense of that cognitive dissonance by saying, well, it must just not be possible. It must be out of reach. If Obama didn't do it and he's a real mensch, it must just not be possible, you know? So I, you, there's a part of your, your paper, Johanna, that talks about executive action. What could be done right now? What kind of um, moves could Joe Biden make in this moment? That could start us along the right path. Yeah. So that's a really good question. I think that, um, well, one, there are ways for him to start constraining the industry um, and, you know, you know, and working to end subsidies that he has control over, working to end kind of the, you know, um, implementing when it's right import or export bans, like these things that are actually going to make the um, the fossil fuel industry cringe. Um, And he actually he has some power over stopping drilling. And so that actually could potentially put them in a situation in which they're claiming Hammering for that government receivership. Oh, Johanna, that's the opposite of what's happening. (laughs) All of the incentives right now are for him to drill more and to subsidize more because people are paying so much at the pump. Well, but then that's where like we can bring in like some of the like I think it's a combination of demand side and um and supply side, right? So the supply is like, okay, we can't work with, you know, people at the pump. Like what we need to do is ramp up our production of renewable energy as quickly as possible, mm. start transforming those systems as we're winding down the oil and gas industry so that we are no longer dependent on this volatile um, you know, commodity, oil mm. and gas. So I think like there are and also, I mean 
mean, we already have things like the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve that they have unleashed that Biden has like control over. But like, are there ways for us to actually extend that so that we're managing our oil and gas production in a way that actually is relevant to geopolitics and to like climate goals as well? We've just heard clips today, starting with the Majority Report, discussing the rise of neoliberalism at the end of history. Tom Hartman explained why we need to nationalize our oil industry and why that shouldn't be controversial. Citations needed in two parts discussed first the letdowns of the Obama administration and then the mediocre liberalism of Biden. And Bad Faith in three parts discussed the process of nationalizing an industry and the political barriers that we would need to overcome. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from the Majority Report discussing the Democrats' seeming pride in their powerlessness. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay. This is Nick from California. I wanted to call in about your comment about psychologists and how they, assuming psychologists in general, believe that everything is all in the head. First off, I just, I wanted to comment on that because that's, I don't think that's really a fair assessment of psychology as a field. She sent over a podcast hosted by two psychologists and I listened to a couple of episodes of it. It gives me a very when all you have is a hammer sort of vibe in that as psychologists, they seem to always think that everything, including being trans, is just in people's heads, which on one hand, it sort of is, right? I mean, everything is in our heads. Our entire perception of the world is just in our heads. But there's an interplay between the real world and what's in our heads that they don't seem to be addressing very often. You know, your intro to psych book will define psychology as the study of behavior and mental processes. But I don't like that definition. Uh, I like the one by Henry Gleitman, 1981, who defined psychology as a loosely federated intellectual empire that stretches from the domains of the biological sciences on one border to those of the social sciences on the other. Psychology is barely a thing. This federation, so to speak, of almost different disciplines is nominally held together by using the scientific method to answer questions in our various areas of interest. And again, even that is only mostly true. But this is a, a, a very big field with lots of sub-areas. And uh, thus to say that like psychologists view something that way it would just be very difficult because there's so many different types of psychologists. So it's not fair to say that psychologists say everything is in the head when you have some people explicitly focused for 70 years answering questions in behaviorism about how the environment shapes behavior and ignores quote unquote the head and then you have other people that are basically biologists and then others who are more similar to sociologists or social workers it's a gigantic field even within the domains of clinical psychology there is a wide variety of, of different clinical approaches. And I also just want to comment that these two psychologists, what they were doing is fine when you're brainstorming for potential hypotheses. Like, it's good to come up with potential other explanations. But then you have to test those explanations. You're correct. We don't then just randomly pick one. Or because there are many possibilities that we can dream up, that that means the one that has the best evidence somehow loses support. Yeah, that's not how that works at all. What they should have done was they could test those things. And then clearly you even came up with reasons why those tests would fail. And uh, so what they were doing was just supporting their wild ideas with mystery mongering, which is not a way to do psychology. So in some, I guess I would say they weren't doing psychology right.
And although I'm not very knowledgeable in that sub area, I would also suggest that the reason the consensus is around gender affirming care at this juncture is because of psychological research that largely it falls in line or even created that consensus. Okay. Thank you. Have a good day. Stay awesome. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestoftheleft.com. So we just heard from Nick from California, and he was referencing a commentary I did on episode 1481, if you want the full context. And here's what I had to say about it after thinking a little bit more. When making those comments, I had just been thinking about gender-affirming care through the lens of there being lots of talk about multidisciplinary treatment teams. I'd been doing research and sort of like reading up on the subject, and not only was there a lot of talk about that in the literature describing how gender-affirming care sort of works, the podcast in question and the two psychologists who host it were actually interviewing either a doctor or a pair of doctors who were members of a multidisciplinary team, right? And so this is what was on my mind as I was formulating that commentary, these teams of various medical and mental health professionals all working together. And then these psychologists who are hosting this podcast seem to be coming at the issue from such a relatively narrow focus on not only just psychology, but within that field of psychology, they focused even more narrowly on pure mental maladies, and there was almost no talk or concern, it seemed, for physical or environmental factors that could play into those mental maladies. But beyond that, the other reason I zeroed in on their focus of mental sources for gender dysphoria was that it wasn't just their search for the sources that was the problem. It was that they also wanted to only focus on potential mental solutions as well. So the subtext was basically, this is just a mental malady. There's likely a psychological solution that doesn't involve the need for medical treatment, such as hormone or surgical intervention, right? Like start to finish, that's the angle they were coming at it from. So I'm glad to hear from Nick that, you know, perhaps a good psychologist would go about this process much differently and look more deeply at factors outside the realm of purely the mind. And very much admittedly, I was thinking of psychology more in the way that a lay person might, you know, that, uh, you know, a psychological problem or a psychological solution has to do with what's in one's mind. Of course, a psychologist trying to figure out what is going on in a person's mind should take a lot of other factors into consideration. I certainly agree with that and and am not surprised that that is actually how it's supposed to work. Now, the real scary thing is that these two psychologists in question actually do specialize in the treatment of gender diverse youth. This is their clientele. So as I said to the listener who suggested this podcast to me, it's a bit like needing an abortion and ending up in a crisis pregnancy center staffed with people who have already decided what is best for you based on their ideology, rather than keeping all options on the table and approaching each patient on a case-by-case basis. So thanks to Nick for calling in with that, that clarification. I genuinely didn't mean to put all psychologists in one sort of bucket and say, this is how psychologists you know, feel or act or think about things. I use the analogy in that commentary about, uh, you know, how when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, uh, and, and obviously, a, a reasonable takeaway from that is that psychologists only have a psychological hammer. And that isn't even what I meant. So that that was me being, uh, you know, not as specific or, or as clear as I could or should have been. I really thought, a good psychologist would have, you know, a full set of tools, but these psychologists only had a hammer. So for them, they ended up staying in a very narrow lane, whereas other psychologists, or particularly what I had in mind at the time was psychologists who are members of a multidisciplinary team would very naturally not stay in such a narrow lane because they'd have a whole team of people 
pulling in different directions and, you know, analyzing from different angles to make sure that a consensus could be formed from, you know, from a variety of perspectives. Now, as always, just a quick last thing before I go, I'm still putting out the call for interesting stuff. I've been getting some great suggestions of podcasts or books or documentaries, sometimes new stuff, sometimes old. And so I, I would love if you keep that stuff coming in. I never know where the next bit of inspiration for a great episode topic is going to strike from. And so these are helping with that. And I hope that it's also fulfilling to share things that you find interesting. That is certainly how this show got started was my sort of all nearly irresistible urge to share the interesting things that I was finding. So as always, you can tweet that stuff at me, send me an email or a voicemail, however you like. Keep your comments coming in on this topic or any other at 202-999-3991 or by sending me an email to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segment, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.